Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, I want to thank our sponsors for the second hour of this show. Uh, the sponsors are American Manganese, Barkerville Gold Mines, Crocodile Gold Corp., Entertopia Corporation, Go West Limited, Smash Minerals, and Trevally Mining Corporation. Uh, Dr. Fitchner, before we went to break, uh, I said I want to come back and talk to you a little bit about the cost of fighting the drug war. We had a drug war that was implemented or put into operation during Richard Nixon, who his presidency, even though his own commission suggested that uh, that marijuana could be uh, maybe should be legalized. I'm not sure if they said that, but they they wanted a, a more favorable attitude towards uh, towards marijuana and its possible medicinal use, at least I believe. Um, so we've had this war on drugs, and almost everybody admits it's been a total failure. It has not stopped uh, abuse of substance abuse by any by any means. Either you know, certainly we have uh, substance abuse of legalized drugs, alcohol and tobacco, as we said, but but these illegal prescription medicines as well. Prescription medicines as well. My goodness, I mean, I, I mean that yes, even there too. So uh, what what about the cost? I mean, if we're doing something and it isn't working, and but we continue to do it, it makes no sense. What about what is this war on drugs costing us? You know, these um, there, there are a lot of different estimates about. Uh, uh, it depends on how you calculate uh, the. You know, we can talk about the war on marijuana. We can talk about the drug war overall. And uh, you know, it's hard to know. You know what the best estimates are. You know, one estimate that was um, uh, that has been floated uh, by uh, uh, people in uh, law enforcement against prohibition. That's a rather large group. I think about a 10,000 member group of law enforcement officials that uh, are against prohibition, and they've argued for uh, changing the drug war as a whole and, and legalizing all drugs. I, by the way, and just sort of parenthetically, I, I don't really much like the discussion that begins with, you know, let's legalize drugs, uh, mm-hmm. not because I disagree with where they're trying to go with it, but because mm-hmm. I think talk about legalizing drugs it dumbs down the discussion a bit, and here's why, because people need to say what they mean by drugs. I mean, the reality is most drugs are legal. You get them, you know, on the drugstore over the counter, or you get them, you know, by prescription from your doctor. It's mm-hmm. only a select number of drugs that we've chosen to make uh, illegal, and so uh, I don't think it's useful to talk about drugs in this kind of generic way in which, you know, on the one hand, you may mean substances of abuse, on the other hand, you may mean medicines, and you kind of flip your meaning around whenever it's convenient. I think you have mm-hmm. to talk about alcohol. You have to talk about prescription medicines. You have to talk about cannabis. You have to talk about heroin. You know, wh- whatever it is you're concerned about, you've got to drill down and talk about that because they don't all fit into one category. And being a Schedule One drug doesn't clarify that at all. I mean, in terms of the dangerousness of these uh, substances, you know, witness the comparison of alcohol and marijuana. But in any case, uh, one of the numbers that I've heard in connection with um, the work that LEAP has done, uh, they've, they've floated a figure of $70 billion uh, annually. I think that's probably very conservative on the drug war as a whole. And I think what's more useful 
it, rather than trying to understand what that 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 um, number means absolutely, because it's hard for people to really connect that unless you give them some comparison numbers. So, I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things that I talk about in the economics section of the book is, um, you know, what how does that number seventy billion compare to other numbers? Well. Uh, you know, at the time that uh, I put the data together, which were 2009, uh, though actually 2010, the discretionary budget request for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services was $78 billion. That means that's how much money that the Health and Human Services had to uh, spend that was not already um, tied up with, um, with uh, entitlements. So, you know, Medicare and Medicaid continue mm-hmm. to expand because uh, those are entitlement programs, and mm-hmm. that... Seventy-eight billion is only a small fraction of the total, you know, uh, uh, you know, of the total budget of uh, of health and human services. Nonetheless, that is their entire discretionary budget, mm-hmm. and the drug war uh, estimate of seventy billion, you know, comes close to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also think that um, uh, seventy billion was roughly eighty percent of the projected annual cost over a decade. So annually, what it would cost uh, for the health care reform bill that was passed, um, uh, you know in late 2009 on Christmas Eve before the before it went through the revisions that ultimately led to health care reform being passed. So you can make those kinds of comparisons. And you can also look at, um, uh, you know, take that $70 billion figure and compare it to the overall budget for the National Institutes of Health uh, mm-hmm. at the time, uh, just a year ago or so, $31 billion. Mm-hmm. Or the overall uh, medical uh, care budget for the Department of Veterans Affairs, you know, thirty-eight point mm-hmm. seven billion. So, mm-hmm. I mean, when you compare it to numbers like that, uh, it begins to give you know give you an idea um, about how if uh, if we managed these uh, problems more in a uh, public health and in a, um, a healthcare frame of reference, uh, we might be able to use those dollars much more effectively. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know your. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the title of your book. It's uh, Cannabinomics. Uh, how yeah. did you come up with that title? Well, it, it's a word that I coined to um, to really mean the, the management of cannabis. So I didn't really mean cannabis and economics, you know, in the narrower sense. And I suppose, um, you know, I'm not an economist, and I, I suppose an, an economist might argue that that was the difference between macroeconomics and microeconomics. Um, but it, the idea was that uh, cannabinomics is uh, the management of cannabis, and it proposes that we change our frame of reference and our way of thinking uh, away from talking about marijuana policy, whether it's marijuana legalization or marijuana decriminalization or marijuana anything, and talking about instead uh, the management of cannabis, so partly because marijuana seems to be an offensive word to some people. It seems to have a you know, negative connotation, as we talked about earlier, associated with the counterculture and so forth, whereas uh, cannabis is a, it's much easier to have a conversation about how you, how you manage cannabis. So it's a proposal to change language, and it's a proposal to um, think about a management paradigm as a way out of this uh, criminalization, legalization, polarization, is think, think as a way to uh, develop a new vocabulary for talking about how to handle this particular substance, which uh, is highly valued, as we've already said, uh, in, in every state in the, uh, in the country, and some, obviously in some states more than others, but very widely consumed and has a very wide, uh, uh, very high potential commercial value. Mm. There, in your book, you mention uh, there were, I think, 500 economists uh, headed up by, well, the, the name I recognize and everybody would recognize, Milton Friedman. 
that came right out and uh, basically recommended the legalization of marijuana. Could you ta- tell our listeners a little bit about their recommendations? What what was what they basically what said thing? was they basically said we uh, I actually have the quote here. We urge the country to commence an open and honest debate about marijuana prohibition. We believe such a debate will favor a regime in which marijuana is legal but taxed and regulated like other goods. At a minimum, this debate will force advocates of current policy to show that prohibition has benefits sufficient to justify the cost to taxpayers uh, and to justify the foregone foregone tax revenues and the numerous ancillary consequences that result from marijuana prohibition. So Mm -hmm. what they were essentially encouraging was – uh, a debate, you know, a conversation about it. And I guess to take the next step into what I, I'm trying to do with this book is to say, you know, let's, t- let's take it one step further. Let's not have an open and honest ba- debate about marijuana prohibition. Let's have an open and honest debate about cannabis management. <laughs> I mm-hmm. think it's an easier one for people to participate in. And, you know, and then some people will say, well, isn't that a gimmick? And you're just you know, playing tricks with language. Well, you know, maybe so, but that's it's it's you know it's put out there with the intent of saying you know what do people think about this? And I think that in fact um, there are many instances uh, in our history where changing our language has had a um, favorable impact on changing our thought process. Well, certainly, and you mentioned earlier uh, where the drug officials started using the word marijuana instead of cannabis. You mentioned in your book, uh, you give several reasons why cannabis is the natural starting point for drug policy reform. Could you perhaps share some of those with our listeners? Yeah, well, I would say that, uh, you know, we have, uh, of course, a global uh, drug trafficking issue that, uh, you know, the United States is involved in in, in very many places. We, you know, we tend to associate the flow of uh, of, uh, of of coca related products uh, from uh, you know from South America and then uh, of you know the opium trade uh, in Afghanistan and and uh, of course um, much of the um, uh, illegal drugs uh, flow across the border through Mexico so uh, you know we have uh, concerns about drug abuse and about illegal you know trafficking of dangerous drugs that are very very broad and global in the United States and um, I just suggest that. Um, first of all, uh, if you consider herbal cannabis, uh, it, it's one of the least dangerous of the drugs that we're talking about, mm-hmm. maybe maybe the least dangerous. Um, it's not to say it's completely benign. It's not to say that people can't sometimes develop problems with it and have a hard time stopping it. But, you know, it's it's generally considered to be less addictive not only than alcohol and tobacco, but even than, than, even than caffeine, you know, or coffee. Mm-hmm. So, I mean um, – uh, there's, uh, you know, part, you know, part of what what I'm suggesting is that number one, because of its relative safety, uh, and the fact that it's very widely used across the entire United States, and in fact that it's very, uh, you know, extensively grown domestically, and in most of our marijuana is not brought in across the border. You know, there is some that's brought in across the border, but the majority of it is uh, is grown uh, is grown, you know, in the underground, uh, you know, domestically, and so. Uh, the idea is that uh, cannabis is the natural starting point for raising broader global drug war, uh, for addressing broader dro- global drug war issues, because it's a matter of 
getting our arms around uh, an issue that is um, is in our own backyard. This is mm-hmm. a domestic product. This is something that Americans do. We produce mm-hmm. it. They use it. You know, it's in all 50 states. Uh, you know, we've had some estimates of what its value is, and it's not negligible. So the idea would be let's clean up our own backyard before we go trying to figure out how to how to control uh, those issues in other countries. And that and to take it a step further than that would be to say perhaps if we learn how to regulate this uh, commodity that we produce a lot of domestically, maybe we'll learn um, something about the transition from a prohibitive model to a regulated model, a regulation model that would then uh, uh, provide us some, uh, uh, some, um, some knowledge, some learning that we could apply to these broader global drug war problems such as Mm -hmm. opium in Afghanistan or coca in Colombia. Well, certainly your book uh, provides a lot of legitimate reason for legalizing marijuana for at least for medicinal uses. And it's just interesting, I mean, speculation. I just wonder if you maybe would speculate a little bit in terms of what are the groups and the interests against doing that? I mean, because here we have, you know, President Nixon going against his commission. Uh, We had President uh, Bush in 1992 uh, you know, slamming the door on on compassionate use of marijuana. There seems to be a a bias, and, and I'm wondering if Big Pharma might not come into play, although I could see Big Pharma getting involved and, and actually using this drug uh, as a, you know, as another profit center. But what, uh, there's a big bureaucracy, of course. We must hire a huge amount of people, the, the government does, in fighting the war on drugs. Is is that part of what's what's keeping... What's keeping logic and reason from reigning here? Well, you, you know, you do have the drug war um, bureaucracy, and that was actually uh, anticipated um, even as far back as the 70s. I mean, some of the folks associated with uh, uh, Nixon's um, commission, um, and maybe even further back than that, were concerned that this this drug war may create a uh, self-propagating bureaucracy, which I think mm-hmm. is exactly what it's done. So there certainly is that. There's uh, what you might call the prison industrial complex, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's um, the uh, uh, not just big pharma, and that's it's hard to know. I mean, yeah, it, it, there's less incentive for pharmaceutical industries to develop products that, um, well, in the case of, of cannabis, if it's scheduled, uh, you know, as a you know, Schedule One drug, it's a, that's it's going to require a lot more effort for them to fight their way through that mm-hmm. regulatory constraint. Uh, but there's also, um, you know, I guess you'd say big alcohol. Uh, certainly the alcohol industry put uh, money into um, uh, fighting against the recent um, uh, Proposition 19 in California this last November, which uh, lost by, I think it was 46% to 54%, uh, which was an effort to um, uh, to tax and regulate cannabis, uh, that initiative. So I think those are some of the, um, some of the special interests that may uh, – uh, you know, may have uh, you know ha- have an impact on, on it. I mean, I don't I don't know um, you know how hard the tobacco industry you know has fought against that. I uh, but those are all you know uh, industries that one would think of. Uh, mm-hmm. But you're right. In theory, uh, the pharmaceutical industry could develop um, products similar to what's being looked at now, as I mentioned earlier, Sativex from GW mm-hmm. Pharmaceutical, which is in uh, a, a UK-based country uh, a company. And uh, so that um, 
you know, that's one example. I, I do think that it's not clear as this goes forward whether uh, we'll be looking at, you know, more of an emphasis on FDA approval of uh, herbal cannabis as medicine or more of an emphasis on the use of it as a, as a complementary and alternative uh, uh, therapeutic substance that maybe would be available on an age-restricted basis. And one of the things I think um, is uh, also possible is that the medical cannabis model, especially in California, where you have broad discretion given to doctors about how they recommend it and what they recommend it for, uh, that could be used to transition more to a public health model where it just becomes a matter of, uh, of access to it as an age-restricted substance. I mean, I know there's been a lot of talk about, oh, how easy it is to get a card in California and that people uh, abuse it because you can get, you know, marijuana for almost anything if you, if you want a card, and they see that as a, a fault of the doctors that make those recommendations. And I, I certainly don't think that under the current law, um, doctors should just be rubber stamping requests for uh, cannabis access. I think that you know it's important to do a you know to do a thorough medical evaluation. And many of the colleagues that I have who do a lot of medical cannabis recommendations will say exactly that that they you know they want to uphold the integrity of their evaluation process and say yes we do think there's a legitimate medical use and that's why we're approving it. But let me add quickly to that that many of those doctors. Uh, are um, likely to uh, give the patient the benefit of the doubt unless there are obvious problems or obvious dangers. Why? Because the side effect profile and the risk profile is so low compared mm -hmm. to other uh, substances or even other medicines. I mean, mm -hmm. it, in other words, it's many doctors who are doing medical cannabis recommendations believe that the um, that the risk-benefit analysis is so easy to do uh, that uh, really, ultimately, uh, herbal cannabis ought to be available as an over-the-counter medicine, but on an age-restricted basis. Mm -hmm. Are you optimistic uh, in terms of uh, the progression of, uh, for its use uh, in, as a medicine? Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, in California, there's certainly a very good framework. It's very workable uh, in place. I mean, despite what people uh, will say about, you know, look at all the problems in California. I think some of the problems that have arisen in California have been because of a failure of uh, law enforcement to get on board with, with the law and, you know, mm -hmm. blaming patients for things that go on instead of perhaps uh, uh, people that may be interested in robbing dispensaries. You know, mm -hmm. so in other words, you're focusing on, on, on the patients rather than, than the criminal. So I think California provides a pretty good model, and I think uh, that could be carried forward, uh, you know, at a, at a national level. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, you're asking me if I was optimistic. Yeah. I think that um, I tend to think of, it, it, you know, there's been a lot of comparison of the era that we're in now, this time, to the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. If you look at the Great Depression, you kind of you know, think of it as uh, – 1929 with the uh, you know with the stock market crash and then look at what happened in late 1932 going into 1933 alcohol prohibition was repealed mm -hmm. so I tend to look at the current environment as being very similar to that mm -hmm. so that it didn't it didn't take long once you you know went once we were in the economic crisis of the Great Depression uh, to repeal alcohol prohibition and it was partly for economic reasons but also for public health reasons uh, you know not only at the level of uh, the, the you know the crimes and the violence, but also at the level of poor regulation of alcohol. So I think you could look at uh, – I do tend to look at the current environment uh, as analogous to that time, and that would suggest that we're very near a major change, and I think we are. Exactly how that's going to roll out, I don't know, but I think there are several forces that are converging that are going to, going to take this forward. 
That's very interesting, Dr. Fitchner, because we on this show oftentimes look at the uh, the current time frame as being analogous to that of the 1930s as well uh, from an economics uh, perspective. Uh, anything in the Obama health care bill that might be favorable? And, and in general, is the Obama administration inclined towards legalization? Well, I, I don't. I, I don't know that I can really speak to that authoritatively. Yeah. I, I think people, uh, advocates, were very optimistic when um, statements were issued early on that uh, it was the intent of the administration to, uh, you know, not to prosecute people who were using, um, uh, who were involved with um, herbal cannabis, uh, for, you know, producing it, using it uh, as medicine under. Uh, state laws that they were going to back away from that, and I think there were some initial efforts made to do that. But um, there's also been uh, some behavior that's been inconsistent with that. You know, mm-hmm. continuing raids, continuing uh, uh, prosecutions, and even recently, I understand some threats to prosecute state officials involved in uh, implementing these laws. So mm. it seems like we're hearing mixed messages. Uh, I think. Um, uh, you know how much we can expect the um, the administration uh, to do, uh, as opposed to um, uh, changes that need to take place, you know, at the grassroots level and through Congress. I mean, I I would I'd be surprised if if Congress were to actually pass a rescheduling. I would be surprised if the president wouldn't sign it. I mean, I would mm-hmm. think that he would because there would be a you know movement in that direction. But you know, I can't speak for the administration on that. I do know that there hasn't been a lot of change in the. Um, the DEA leadership structure. I mean, mm-hmm. still people uh, uh, involved in important leadership positions that were, you know, carrying out the, um, you know, the harsher policies of the mm-hmm. Bush administration. So, right. uh, and it, and that goes along with the refusal to um, uh, to uh, open the door to uh, things like um, allowing universities to uh, uh, to um, uh, to develop labs where they where they grow it for medicinal use. So mm-hmm. The University of Massachusetts has had a proposal on the table for some time, and and that was um, supported uh, in the DEA adjudication process, but then you know but then overturned at the level of implementation. Mm-hmm. So um, you know so in other words, all all the legitimate legitimately produced marijuana for research purposes, you know, as far as recognized by the federal government, is all produced at the University of Mississippi, although in theory uh, it could be produced by other, um, by other labs, by other entities, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that would uh, maybe perhaps compete, you know, uh, in, a, in a request, in an RFP framework would, repeat, mm-hmm. would, would compete uh, for the opportunity to grow cannabis for medicinal use. And, of course, those uh, when you have the opportunity for you know something other than a monopoly, so we, right now we have a federal monopoly from the from the federal government standpoint on legitimate production of marijuana. If that is opened up, now you have opened up a competitive process, which, as we know, always improves quality, right? Mm-hmm. Quality and, and price too, perhaps. Yes, price as well, right? Yeah, I want to thank you very much. We are out of time now, uh, Dr. Fishner. It's been a very enlightening discussion. Uh, folks, the book is Cannabinomics, Cannabinomics, uh, and uh, I presume you can buy it at any of the major bookstores, Barnes and Noble, or online, or well, whatever. So uh, I want to thank you very much. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say the easiest way to access it would be to go to www.cannabinomics.com, and that's C-A-N-N-A-B-I-N-O-M-I-C-S. 
www.cannabinomics.com. And it also it is accessible through Amazon.com. Uh, it can be bought through Barnes & Noble online, although it's not widely present in there, not widely available in their stores at this time. So, okay. you know, online is probably the easier way to get it. Yeah, and can people then kind of keep up with, uh, with what you're doing or the movement uh, at that website as well? Yeah, that's a pretty good place to, to keep up with it, and there's some links to other, other sites as well. Where Excellent. Other information available. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Fitchner, for coming on Turning Hard Times into Good Times. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and learning more about this topic, which is uh, apropos, I would say, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times, and I think – uh, very interesting that you made the analogy uh, with the 1930s because we oftentimes do that on this show. Well, folks, don't go away. I'm going to be right back after the commercial break with our next guest. Don't go away. Thank you, Jay. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Origa Gold is a Canadian mine development and exploration company working in Manitoba's prolific Flin Flon Greenstone Belt. Origa's experienced management team is focused on developing the Maverick Gold Project and expanding gold resources. Maverick Gold includes historical gold resources, a 1,000-ton-per-day mill, developed underground ramp, year-round roads, and exploration access. Origa plans to bring Maverick Gold back into production in 2012. Origa Gold trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol AIA. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Valet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. 
That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Well, I have now been doing this radio show for a little more than two years, and the list of very interesting guests just keeps on growing and growing. And I expect we're going to keep getting new guests and a lot of return guests as well. But one of the things I would like to ask you as a listener to this show is for uh, for you to send some feedback to me. Let us know uh, what you're thinking about our show. If you like the guests, if you like what they're saying, or if you don't like what they're saying, controversy is always interesting and good. Uh, we want to uh, have more interactivity with the guests and the listeners and uh, myself and my listeners as well. So if you want to send in uh, questions or comments, uh, send them to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, T-A-Y-L-O-R, at gmail.com. On January 5th and 6th, I interviewed 14 very interesting mining companies in Vancouver in what I call my Face the Analyst series. In these videos, I ask questions of company executives just as I would ask them if I were sitting opposite them looking to consider them for inclusion as a recommendation in my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Most of the companies I interviewed uh, this past weekend uh, in Vancouver were gold exploration companies, but I also interviewed a silver mining company two tungsten mining companies, as well as a uranium and rare earth company. It's not likely that all of these companies will become household names, but some of them might. They have a good chance, I think, of being very successful. Uh, Of this group, two companies that I think have the highest probability of catapulting themselves into the major leagues would be Pritium Resources, that's a gold exploration company with just under 60 million ounces of gold in British Columbia, and South American Silver, with massive silver reserves in Bolivia. That's not to say those companies will earn investors the biggest gains because they are already more expensive than many of the others. But Pritium Resources is headed up by Robert Quartermain. Robert Quartermain is of silver standard fame and as such brings a very successful track record to head up that company. Southern Silver is headed by Greg Johnson. He was the co-founder of Nova Gold. If you're interested in a penny stock that could provide enormous gains, Kent Exploration is one I interviewed. It's selling at a mere seven cents, but it has some extraordinary properties. Uh, It is highly speculative, to be sure, but with some positive drill results, this stock could quickly become a moonshot. Other gold exploration stories that I think have a really good shot of earning their shareholders a lot of money are Columbian Mines Corp., Columbus Gold, Augen Gold, Metanor Resources, Barkerville Gold, Majestic Gold, Prodigy Gold, and PNG Gold. The two companies with tungsten projects that look quite promising are Playfair Mining and Wolf Mining. Wolf is operating in Korea. Wolf also has a gold prospect uh, in that country that looks very attractive. The company with an advanced stage uranium deposit and a rare earth deposit is Pele Mountain. Very soon, within the next week or so, most or all of those interviews that I did this past weekend in Vancouver will be available at jtaylormedia.com. That's jaytaylormedia.com, which is the place that you can go to to access this radio show and a host of other activities that I'm involved with. The videos will also be available at investmentpitch.com. Investmentpitch.com, 
on on which board advisory board I am a member. Well, that's about all the time we have for this week. Next week, our special guest will be Peter Grandage, and I think we may also have a corporate guest or two joining me as well. In closing, I want to thank the staff at Voice America for making this show logistically possible. Um, my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, and Justin Jackman, my engineer. I want to thank uh, all of you for listening to the show, making it the number one show on the Voice America uh, business channel. And thanks, of course, to our sponsors for making the show economically viable. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real.